0: You've just tuned into the Unify Podcast from Unify Youth. Our goal is to equip young people with the Word of God so they can live empowered in Christ and tackle the challenges of this world. Tune in for weekly sermons, devotions, and interviews. Welcome to the Unify Podcast.
1: Okay, well, welcome everybody to our Q&A session for camp. Uh, We got a good number of questions in. We're pretty happy and we're going to try to answer as many of them as I can. Of course, we have Pastor Andrew, we have Joseph Runya, we have Glenn and myself, uh, and we'll be answering the questions that you guys submitted. And if we have any extra time, we'll try to take answers from from here as well. Um, But before we give answers to your questions, hopefully. Uh, Let's pray and commit this time to God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you are knowable. You reveal yourself to us. And Lord, there are answers to tough questions. We pray that you would help us on this panel to be able to answer these questions adequately, most importantly, faithfully. May our words be full of truth and grace. And we pray that you would bless this time now. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So our first question is this How can Christians overcome temptation? How if I'm a Christian, how can I overcome temptation? John Owen.
0: Are you here? No. <laughs> you can start us off. Yeah. We talked about this. It's I think how to overcome temptation, you, there's a lot of different practical things that you can do, um, but the practicals um, don't necessarily affect who you are inside. So let's say, for example, um, you can have a friend that keeps you accountable. You can have software in your phone and stuff like that to kind of help you get by that or like even like things that you set on your network security to help you kind of avoid temptation. But um, all those things are kind of this practical sense of helping you avoid things from a behavioral standpoint. So that's just the things that you do rather than things that happen within you. So let's put it to perspective temptation Um, when Jesus says that if you look at a woman lustfully with your eyes, you've already committed adultery. So those things that you do on a practical standpoint, they're stopping you from actually committing something physically, but that doesn't really change what you're inside and you've already committed sin anyway. And so the only real way to overcome temptation is to put your faith in the only person who's overcome it. Jesus was tempted, and he overcame temptation. Without him, we actually are incapable of overcoming temptation to begin with. Um, Scripture is the only way to uh, learn more about Jesus, to put our faith in Jesus. And he not only overcomes temptation, he also gives you a way to flee from it. Uh, And I guess the only other side note that I got there is, by the way... um, Satan never causes any of us to sin. He tempts us to sin, so the sin is ours, not Satan. So some people might say, "Oh, the, the devil made me do it." Never really the case. The devil tempts us, so it's a very good question on like if someone's asking, "How do I overcome temptation?" Well, really, learn more about Jesus. Put your trust, uh, put your faith in Jesus, and he'll change your nature in a way that he'll help you overcome because he has overcome.
2: Yeah, just. Um Confer with that, but yeah, I think I think temptation is going to be a natural part of the human experience, yeah. and um, I think Joe rightly looked to Christ, who was the one that overcame temptation. But I guess we have the two sides of our nature: we have the flesh and we have our spirit. And as believers, firstly, that's probably the most critical thing: is is to have faith in Christ. Um, and then we are are able to then walk in the spirit and then we don't gratify the desires of the flesh, as Paul says. Um, And so it's that spirit-led renewal and transformation of your heart. Um, You know, um, Paul also says in Romans 12 about renewing our minds um, to know what the perfect will of God is. Um, So scripture is what can be used to uh, help us to um, change our heart's desires. And and when we're saved, the the actual process of salvation is actually a process of spiritual regeneration. Mm. And so, um, you know, when that process was talked about in maybe Jeremiah and Ezekiel, it talks about the fact that, um, you know, we have a heart of stone that's given a heart of flesh and then God himself will teach us to walk in his ways, in his precepts. Because temptation at the the heart of it is is sinful if it leads into into sinfulness Um, and that comes up from the root of our being, the heart of our being. Out of the heart comes the issues of life. Um, So if we're not overcoming temptation, um, you know, it, it could possibly be a sign of, you know, are we saved? But as saved people, we still struggle. And Paul talks about that in Romans as well, about doing what he didn't want to do and, and you know, uh, not not doing what he'd like to do and doing what he doesn't want to do. Um, so those sorts of things. So it's it's a natural condition, mm. um, but it's that living in the Spirit, um, walking in the Spirit, being renewed by the Spirit through the Word that helps us to have a heart that is transformed and wanting to walk in um, rightness. I'll probably stop there. Is
1: there anything that you would like to add?
3: Yeah, there that, that are great answers. James chapter 1, verse 13 says, Each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires. So where does temptation come from? comes from our desire we're going to be tempted by what we want so the best way to overcome temptation is for our desires to be aligned rightly and Psalm 37 verse 4 says delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart so the actual answer ultimately to overcome temptation is for our heart to be in love with Christ If we love him and we want to honour him and we adore him, the more we love him, that takes hold of our heart and the more we want to reject sin and the more we want to be able to please him. Of course, we will fail and that's where we make use of the blessing of asking God to forgive us of our sins. And when we love Jesus, we want to love the things that Jesus wants us to do. So I just encourage you, love the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's going to realign your desires.
1: Yeah, great answers. The only thing that I'll simply add uh, is that we will struggle with sin. Um, We will struggle. But when we fail, we run to Christ. We run straight to Christ, who paid for our sin, and who reminds us of his grace for us. That we're not trapped in our sin, we're not hopeless, but we are saved. Um, We need to run to Christ when we fail. And when we succeed, we need to run to Christ. And often we don't. We run to ourselves. We pat ourselves on the back and we say, yeah, I I did pretty good. I prayed about it and I did pretty good. God did pretty good. God did amazing, actually. So when we fail, run to Christ. When we succeed, run to Christ and glorify him for that victory. Uh, I'll jump to the next question. Why do we sing songs at youth group? Why do we sing songs at youth group? I'm going to Direct this straight to our music director.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you better have an I better have I better have an answer,
1: but I'm not the one
0: who runs youth groups. So um, why would we sing songs at youth groups? So it's kind of like trying to figure out how to summarize an entire 48 minute message that I did earlier. Um, so first and foremost, let's. I want to just take a step back and thinking of. It's a very Christian thing to sing, singing as an individual, singing psalms in the spiritual song, singing things that make you meditate upon the word of God, and singing things that make you consider God is a good thing. Any given time, that is a means of grace, because singing helps you meditate. But singing also, um, for those who weren't there in my workshop, singing. Is a means of meditation, singing is a means of unification. It unites you to people who sing the same song as you, sing the same messages as you. It also is a means of educating yourself and to express yourself and to um, experience something that is being sung. So um, you could do that in your individual life. When we're singing as a gathered church, that is something that we are called and commanded to do because of those things, but ultimately, well, God has commanded the gathered church to sing. Now, Youth group isn't your gathered church Sunday service, Lord's Day service um, on a Sunday. Um, it is happening on a Friday night. So why would we sing? You don't necessarily have to, but I think it's a really good idea to be singing in youth group. Uh, first and foremost, for the sing- things that I just said, if you are a youth group called, for most of you, are in a youth group called Unify, music has the power to u- unify people by the messages that you sing. So when you guys are preparing for the for the message to talk, the Bible study or whatever, when you sing these songs, it helps you prepare your hearts, meditate on God's word, and it unites you guys all with one voice. My favorite part though is after a Bible study or after a message, when you guys consider the message, are you guys, is anyone not familiar with the term theology? Okay, you guys all know theology? Anyone not familiar with the term doxology? Okay, no shame in that. Okay, so doxology is essentially when you've learned something, it is a response of praise. Theology begets doxology. In other words, when you learn about God, you will respond in praise. Every time God reveals himself, our call is to reverentially respond. So when you guys learn about God at youth group, and you don't know how to respond to it outside of just talking to your friends, actually to declare his name by praising his name and singing is a pretty good way to do it. So doing it at youth group, you want to know why you have to? Well, you don't, it doesn't prescribe in the Bible you, that you should do it at youth group, but it's a pretty good thing to do when you're doing it at youth.
1: Yeah, the, I want you to realize, and this is for church as well, but when there is a song afterwards, after the message, that's intentional. Every music choice is intentional with church. It's not just simply like, yeah, I like this song a lot. I'm vibing this way this week. Um, it is intentionally placed the songs that we sing beforehand and what we sing in response to what we have learnt afterwards. And that helps us to remember what we've learnt and it helps us to praise God for what we've learnt about Him as well. So as we go through the rest of our camp sessions, take notice of the songs that we're singing. Why am I singing that song now? Um, the song after Pastor Andrew's message this evening is a very intentional choice. And I think now that you're aware of that, you'll probably pick that up. Um, But that should drive you to be excited to sing these songs because we're responding to what we learn in praise of God. On a side note,
0: to Matt's point, um, and I don't mean to put down other churches, but sadly, it's not a common practice to consider the things that we sing. I've been in churches where... The songs that are picked are just, just because or the song the song leader or um, the person who's singing just picks the songs that he likes. and Nothing necessarily wrong with that, but when you're singing in a church and you're not singing too many songs, if you're singing four songs and there's so many great songs out there, you want to pick four of the best songs that you can sing and then sing the songs that are applicable to your situation now. If we're talking about a situation of, if the message is about grief, does that mean all all the songs before the message have to be about grief and then the after? No, not necessarily. It's usually the after because that's the response. But every single truth that you sing that unites you with the church that makes you praise God for that, that makes you consider God, all of those should be be considered and um, intentionally picked for the glory of God and for the good of the people around you. Um, sadly, most churches actually don't do that, um, and this is me tooting the, the horn of our own church. Every single song that we try to pick in our own services is intentionally picked.
2: So. Actually, just say one point, a little bit of a tangent, but I think it's important, and the point that you made about good theology produces good doxology. Um, okay, we're not, I'm, talking, I'm thinking about just the music that we listen to outside of church mm. and the the effect that that can have on us. And I remember as a young person at your age, the t- sort of music I was listening to was not always beneficial. Mm. Um, and so just something to think about. Music is, is something that God has created and created in us to be able to glorify him, but it can be abused. Mm. And so just an encouragement, um, exhortation for you guys just to think about the, the reality that music can play in your life in terms of um, forming the way you think and, and, and that sort of thing. So just be discerning about what you listen to um, and, and that sort of thing outside of
1: church. Yeah. Fantastic. Okay, well, we'll go to our next question. If Adam and Eve were God's first human creation, then what are cavemen? Good question. very <coughs>
3: Cavemen are men who live in caves, (laughs) but I don't think that's what you're after. Uh, Where do cavemen come from? I haven't spent a lot of time studying civilizations and different people groups and history. That's not the big thing I spend most of my time studying, but I do study the Bible and I can fit cavemen into where The biblical story is very easily so first of all cavemen exist um have existed so cavemen literally were men who did live in caves but there was a reason for it it was because they were in very harsh environments we have evidence that there were people who lived in caves there's drawings on walls there's um, a lot of discoveries have been made concerning the uh, weaponry they used and other things like that but when most people think of cavemen they think of these uh Primitive, imbecile, half-ape, half-human type person with a great big um, club. Wood, wooden club and and they just go out and get meat and eat it and come back in their cave. We see that in cartoons and in movies, but that's just silliness. Where did cavemen come from? Well, first of all, when God made Adam and Eve, the very first human beings, you need to understand that they were highly intelligent, um, extremely intelligent, and sin came into the world we're going to learn about that tonight in our session in genesis chapter 3 and sin wrecks everything but even after sin comes into the world the immediate descendants of adam and eve were really smart you go into genesis chapter 5 and you start learning about some of the amazing discoveries and inventions with music as well. Like we learn about musical instruments and things like that, incredible advancements. And then you go all the way to Genesis chapter 11 and people are constructing this massive tower. So up until that point, there would have been no need for um, cavemen, people living in caves and being in sort of primitive conditions. Cavemen would have come into the world definitely after Genesis chapters 6, 7, and 8, after the flood, because the flood has brought dramatic uh, changes to the world and it would have brought um, environmental harsh conditions to the earth. and, And there were phases in which the earth did experience disturbances in terms of uh, various weather patterns, um, periods where there was a lot of ice and and there's, and there's a lot of evidence concerning that. But I think in the biblical story, we, we probably see people moving into some people moving into caves and having civilizations in caves out of necessity, 300 years after the flood, when God changed everyone's languages after the Tower of Babel. Because after the Tower of Babel, before that everyone's living in one place speaking the same language, building an incredible city, civilized, but too intelligent for their own good, so to speak. They became arrogant and God divided the world at that point. Um, There was a baby born at that time called Peleg and that baby's name, Peleg, in Genesis 11 means division. That's when the world was divided, the world was confused. God changed people's languages and people started dispersing to different places. They relocated to different places and they would have moved into conditions that... They wouldn't have been used to, and there was no buildings, no trees to cut down. They would have had to live in caves, and they did that to keep warm. But we don't have to conclude that they were dumb and, and, and silly and, and all of this, but they, over time, uh, cave dwellers would have been the more wild type of people. And we do read about some cave dwellers in the book of Job.
2: I think I understand perhaps where the question's coming from as well I guess in terms of understanding maybe um, the evolutionary theory uh, with respect to sort of what science reports as a historical sort of narrative about how the world came into being and I think what we've been learning in Genesis helps uh, describe a different narrative and a narrative that we must understand science is is a methodology Um, it's not necessarily historical doesn't give you history it allows you to prove a theory and so in order for science to be able to uh, establish a narrative around the development of the universe that we have one thing we must recognize secular scientists um, have the presupposition a different worldview that says there is no God Mm. so what we need to recognize is when they get, you know, artefacts from the earth and they try to make sense of them, they've already concluded there is no God. So that evidence that often speaks to the Genesis narrative is often interpreted differently Mm. because of the presupposition doesn't allow them to actually fit the biblical narrative into it. Um, There is a good book that I've read once called, um, I think, Bones of Contention, it's quite a heavy book but it's done by um, some quite well-known scientists that have looked at a lot of the archaeological evidence around bones and these sorts of things and some of the conclusions. And it's, it's quite remarkable as, as you start to read through this book uh, how um, there's a, a real lack and a gap in a lot of the evidence and a lot of the actual artefacts most scientists that actually push the evolutionary worldview haven't actually even seen these artefacts and so they're making conclusions about maybe what the lifestyle was all these sorts of things without actually seeing these sort of uh, archaeological evidence. So uh, just something to keep in mind and I think that's, you know, when we look at the secular worldview versus the biblical worldview, it really comes down to um, your presuppositions. That helps you interpret information that you receive and so that often will give a misdirection from the secularists in how they want to explain things.
0: I just have like a minor, probably a major tangent, I'm gonna keep it as short as possible, but it's just kind of like food for thought for for you guys, Um, um, piggybacking off what Pastor Andrew and Glenn said. So if you consider cave dwellers and thinking about a six day creation and the cave dwellers were later down the line after Adam um, the general canon of uh, modern-day science scientists is that these cavemen were pre-modern-day men. They were primitive. They were um, basically trying to answer, like Glenn said, a a world with no God. Because let's say scientists back in the day, they believed in six-day creation because they believed in God. But if you don't believe in God, there's no way the world could have been created in six days. Therefore, they had to come up with millions and millions and millions of years. Which also means that if men were an evolved species from ape, and here's where the tangent is that I want you guys to consider um, of these cavemen that possibly lived millions and millions and millions of years ago based on the theory of evolution. Um, When you look at where it goes from ape to men, there was known as a missing link. And so that's why we're at the Darwinian, um, Darwinian point of view of the theory of evolution. Um, every single kind of mentality or mindset will have a knock-on effect on history. Like, Let's say, for example, war 60 years ago had an effect on society and how people perceive themselves, how people perceive roles in different members of society. So every single kind of point of view will have a knock-on effect. It's not just a little thing, it will have a knock-on effect. Darwinianism, if you actually look deep into it when you consider the caveman factor and that missing link, can you take a wild guess as to who these evolved, or men who consider themselves evolved as the missing link? People with darker skin. So you want to know how racism evolved go back to darwinianism because if the if the evolved race considered the darker race as the in between of ape and man clearly they saw them as a different species and they saw them as a lesser people therefore racism So again like it's a bit of a tangent but I think it's like when you consider cavemen from an evolutionary standpoint that actually has a knock-on effect of how we perceive the people that God had created. It's not in the image of God. It's a very fallen worldview.
1: Alright, we'll go to our next question. How should we deal with bad influences in a godly manner? For example, people, or social media? How should we deal with bad influences in a godly manner?
3: (laughs) Thank you. It's a very good question. So there's probably a few things that could be said, and and I'll want to hear from everyone else, because it's nice to hear a, a variety of things that we can pick up on. Um, The very first thing, it it is important just to be aware that there are bad influences out there. Whoever's asking that question, you know that, and it's important to know that and to recognize that you don't just go into the world and everyone's neutral. Um, You don't go into the world and people are just going to agree with you. It's actually very important to understand that there are beliefs out there outside of Christ that are opposed to God's word, and they are influential, and they are going to change the way we think. Amazingly, you look at the life of Christians in churches around the world, and it will happen in every church, is Christians begin to modify their behavior and lifestyle based on what people think in the world or what they watch on TV or what they see on social media. And we have to constantly be making sure that our minds are being shaped by what God's word says, not what the world says. So we have to be aware of those influences. But we have to do a few things. We have to put ourselves, make sure we don't put ourselves in a position where we are being impacted by that influence where possible. You should remove yourself from those influences where possible. Sometimes you can't, but look at the example of Joseph in the Old Testament. Um, Potiphar's wife was tempting him to do something quite horrible, yet he removed himself from that situation, and it cost him. Uh, the guy had to go to jail. But it was worth it. Um, That's something Jesus teaches later on. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Sometimes you have to make drastic, dramatic decisions in order to um, not allow bad company to bring in these horrible morals. So we have to um, remove ourselves from those situations. Secondly, we need to learn how to respond to them biblically. If someone is influencing us online And we need to recognize, don't get into a debate online. Um, A soft answer turns away wrath. Um, Proverbs 15 verse 1. So I just simply say we, we need to keep in mind biblical principles like remove yourself from situations where you can and respond biblically where you can. There's a lot more, but I just want to give those two. I guess another thing...
0: Not necessarily to piggyback off that, but um, if you're considering bad influences and you're in a in a situation where you are being influenced, I think what I want to highlight for for young believers is it's not necessarily bad for you to have a non-Christian friend or spend time with them if you see them as a mission field. But that's different from being influenced by them. You are trying to you can spend time with an unbeliever with the intent to bring them to God. But if they're actually drawing you away from God and they're becoming the bad influence, then you have to cut that off. (laughs) So, because if you think of it, Jesus went to the sinners, but at the same time, if you look at Psalm 1, the the godly man who delights in the law of the Lord, delights in God day and night, he does not stand in the way of sinners. He does not um, walk the path of the ungodly. Neither does he take the, the counsel of the ungodly and he does not sit, or rather rest, or sit amongst the scoffers. Someone who is a believer, who delights in the law of the Lord, does not take counsel from an unbeliever or someone who is ungodly. They meditate on the law of the Lord. They do not rest and dine and um, become one of the scoffers. They find their rest in the word of God. So, it's you have to be able to differentiate between am I being someone who is working a mission field here or am I being influenced? Because at the, at the time you're being influenced and taking the counsel of the ungodly, then you are taking yourself away from having a meditation on the law of the Lord, and that's when you have to flee from that.
2: Yeah, I, I think it's not much to add really, but I'm just like the recognition that. Bad company corrupts good morals. Mm. That's um, something that we need to understand. Um, and so if you feel yourself being influenced in the wrong direction, um, yeah, it's, it's good to remove yourself from that and, and recognise that you know, a lot of the social media stuff, if you look at that perspective, uh, the social media stuff is actually designed for you to engage and to engage you. Mm. Um, so I'm sure they have a lot of psychology people in there to work out how to, how to kind of you know, trap people into the cycle of, of getting on social media and that sorts of thing. So it can have a, a bigger influence in your life than you realise. Um, and so I think it's important to do that. I'd also say in terms of, I guess, cutting yourself off and, and thinking about how you respond biblically, probably important to understand what your relationship is with the person with the person that you're kind of uh, thinking about. So I can imagine on social media there's probably people that you are an acquaintance with or you may not even know, you're just a friend of a friend of a friend or something and so are you really in a position to give them counsel? Perhaps not, maybe it's best just to remove yourself from that but if, if it's a family member then that has a different response perhaps in terms of um, a little bit of a discernment about how you approach it. If it's you know, a friend within um, you know, a youth group. Uh, again, you should be then saying, well, we're actually part of the same church and perhaps maybe there's, there's, a, there's a biblical way in order to do that. And, you know, um, Matthew uh, 18, they would teach us how to approach that. So first you go to them one-on-one, mm. um, so you do it privately, um, and then you can go and escalate that through the normal church discipline sort of areas so there's different approaches based on perhaps your relationship and the circumstance and the context so just for that to be thoughtful about that
1: yeah what i'll just add is that i strongly believe that you become who you hang out with i think when you reflect on your own life your friendship groups uh, a lot of you have church friends and that's wonderful if you're homeschooled you probably have a good connection of people there as well but I went to a public school and I became who I hung out with. Um, I I think that's true. When we look at our lives and we think, yeah, i I become more like them, the sort of things that they think about, they talk about, they behave. And so their sort of behavior will have an impact on you, even if you're a Christian. That doesn't mean cut them off, um, you know, cancel them or, or anything like that. But I think that, To counter that, what we need to do as Christians is we need to make sure that we're spending more time in God's word than we are. Um, Because if we become who we hang out with, then when we acquaint ourselves with God as he reveals himself in his word, then they're not going to have as much of an impact on us. And Joe's right. We will see them as a mission field. We will see them as a blessing from God. There's an opportunity there. Um, Yeah, I I think, look, if they're a bad influence, there's a time to cut people off. There is a time. Um, And when somebody is malicious um, and they're just going after you, there's a good time to cut people off. But if it's simply they're not a Christian, then they're either a mission field or an opportunity. God has put them in your life for you to grow. So that you turn to his word to answer their questions that they may have or to challenge sin that is in your life. Uh, there's all sorts of reasons, but my thought is just spend time in God's word more if you do have a lot of non Christian friends. Yeah. And that'll keep you uh, from turning into them and it will make you conform to the image of Christ. Mm. Just two quick points if
0: if you guys haven't been able to pick it out then we're we're also highlight we were also highlighting in various different ways that it's not only people that can influence you it's the books that you read it's the music that you listen to it's the social media structures that you follow all of these different things if it carries a world view behind it it has an opportunity to either influence or educate you if somebody has um any thoughts about something and they have a following, that's an influence. Uh, doesn't matter if they're sitting right next to you or they wrote a book about it or they sang a song about it. Those are all forms of methods of influence. They don't
2: call them influences for nothing. Yeah, they don't call them influences
0: for nothing. That's why that, that thing exists. Um, but just to touch on a slightly little tweak in consideration, no Christian is perfect and sometimes even the best of Christians would sin and sadly, can influence other Christians poorly, even though they're strong Christians, but they have imperfections that they might not be aware of, and they're influencing others with it. The Bible calls you to rebuke a brother, <laughs> and there's a method behind it that we've been prescribed with. One, it's to, you go to them one-on-one in private. If, if that doesn't work, then you go to that brother um, with another person who's also aware of that same sin, and if they're still sinning and I'm I'm talking as a Christian who struggles with sin but is a bad influence to other people and they're caught up in their sin you have to rebuke them that's what you're supposed to do out of love to your to your brother and if there's they keep on sinning and they're not willing to re, um repent of that sin then they go they end up going to church discipline so um yeah. Yeah. So when you consider bad influences in your life, sadly, and it's true, sometimes strong Christians in a group can still have bad influences on other people. So be
1: mindful of that, too. All right. Thanks, Joe. Our next question. Why do I struggle with doubt and how can I combat doubts?
2: Well, doubt, I guess, is, is not unexpected. I mean, we are finite beings. Um, we have a limited ability to grasp, um, you know, all knowledge. And there's, you know, as we've just been talking about, there's so many influences, different perspective um, on life and, and all things to do with uh, faith um, obviously many different religions with different perspectives, even within the Christian church there's many different, uh, maybe slight variations on, on doctrines and things like that that can maybe create some sense of doubt. Um, but I guess ultimately um, that doubt can be resolved by, I think Andrew sort of mentioned it before, looking to, to, to Christ, uh, in whom... Are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge Mm. and so if we look to Christ and understand who he is that he is the creator the sustainer the one that you live and move and have your being in then those doubts will dissipate Mm. because you're you're putting yourself into a foundation that is bedrock Mm. and so that will help alleviate so always looking to Christ, always looking to uh, him who has all wisdom and knowledge. And, you know, we find obviously the scripture is, is the, the foundation in which we can truly understand the attributes of God, understand who we are um, as people, and that can help uh, dissipate doubts that we have.
1: have
3: The opposite of doubt is trust. And I think the biggest reason why we doubt is because we don't know God well enough. We really don't. We need to get to know God better. We need to know who he is. And when you really know who God is, when you realize how big God is, You have the greatest of reasons to trust him. There's a word related to doubting and and it's it's an emotion we have sometimes and it's fear. And you know what the most common command that Jesus gave was in the New Testament? Fear not. And you know how you get rid of fear and doubt and being scared? You need to replace fear with fear. What I mean by that, let me give you a quick story. And then i'll hand this over jesus was in a boat with his disciples and he was asleep deliberately he was resting and a storm broke out and these fishermen in the boat knew what storms were about they were tough guys they weren't like me in a boat who would just panic straight away um, these guys were used to big waves and storms but it freaked them out like they were scared they thought they were going to die so it must have been really bad right like, could you imagine these real tough fishermen crying? I mean, they become you know, crybabies in this moment. They're, they're really scared. They're going to die. Wake Jesus up. They're scared because of what's outside of the boat. And you know what Jesus does? He stands up and says, peace be still. And suddenly, they were scared again. But this time, they're scared by what's inside the boat. <laughs> they saw that there is one who has more power than anything else. But that fear for Jesus took away their fears and doubts of everything else and that's what we need to do we need to learn how to fear Jesus and we need to know who he is and when we know who he is it doesn't matter what's outside of the boat what matters is what's inside of the boat and you better fear him
0: I love how you touched on the fear of Jesus the fear of God because the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom and much of much of our doubts come from confusion, c- confusion coming from lies, and a lot of lies are mixed in with a bit of truth, but think of some medicine and you just put a little bit of poison in it, it's still poison. Um, <laughs> if you if you consider, let's say, for example, in the garden, the serpent planted doubt onto Eve. What? But if they trusted God and feared God at that moment, and had the wisdom that God had provided, they wouldn't have doubted, but they would have discerned through the lie. So yes, doubt, the opposite of doubt is to trust, but then our response isn't to doubt again, but to discern against lies. And when you can discern against lies, you can only do that by fearing God, which gives you the wisdom to be able to discern through
1: things. Okay, we'll go to our last question how do i know when to read the bible literally or perhaps on the surface and then when to read deeper how do i know when to read the bible literally and when to read it deeper
0: I want to hear his answer. Um, I think you can learn scripture when you look at it from a lens of... I'm glad we're going through Genesis because that gives us a real viewpoint of who God is, who man is. And when you have the right kind of understanding a recalibrated understanding of looking at scripture, it helps you out on on what you will learn, whether you're looking at it from a surface level or a deeper level. And there are so many different things that you can learn from scripture just by looking at it from a surface level and going deeper and deeper and deeper. And because the Bible is so cohesive that sometimes I'm reading surface level here then I read a different passage. I come back to that one, it turns out it's deeper than I thought. Um, but to, to kind of consider what I think the question is asking, when do we read it literally? or deeper and I'm guessing you're trying to figure out, is it a poetic kind of reading? Is it a reading of um, how do we kind of approach this? Is it even literal? Um, Well, a lot of different um, parts of the Bible have different types of narratives. Um, On the gospel part, it's easy (laughs) to figure out what's between history and parable because Jesus makes it clear when he's speaking in a parable and parables aren't necessarily historical narratives, but a, Lesson that you can learn from, um, but history you have to list, read that literally because it is history. those are real events that happened. Um, I think looking at Genesis, I think that's what the big argument is is it do we read it literally or do we read it poetically because are days like a thousand um a thousand days um, or a day is it a literal day um, Those kinds of language come from the poetry of the Bible. The Psalms are songs, they're not historical events. So there is poetry to them, so you have to read them like poetry. But Genesis was given to the people of Israel as history. And historical events aren't poetic, you have to read them literally because it is history. So it helps when you kind of understand what the genre of the context or genre of the content of the narrative is, to help you understand, is this a literal read or is this, do I have to kind of think of this in a different manner from just a literal read?
1: Yeah, genre is important, like Joe's saying, whether it's poetry, whether it's um, uh, wisdom, literature, um, Proverbs Proverbs or Ecclesiastes, maybe James, even depending what your your view is. Um, I think that you, you need to see what the plain reading of the text is. So what is the text trying to communicate and how is it being received by the people? So I'll point to Genesis as an example because we're studying it. Why do we look at that and we think that that is historical and not poetic? Well, because it has the markers of history, it's in a book that is surrounded by history, it's accounting the creation, origins, where things came from. Um, how was it received, though, by people? Well, Moses took it literally. He said, for in six days uh, uh, the, the Lord God made, or he wrote, in six days the Lord God made the heavens and earth and on the seventh rested, so we shall have a Sabbath. That's not a direct quote. Sorry, it's a <laughs> paraphrase. But he believed that it was literal. Um, Jesus refers to the text literally with, uh, in, in regards to a question about marriage, uh, a, a, and he, he mentions male, he, male and female. Um, Paul, as well, it's eluding me, but he, he writes about Adam, Romans 5, perhaps, um, maybe 1 Corinthians 15, I think. Um, he talks about Adam as a real historical person, that in Adam, all died, but in Christ, all will live. It's a bit more than that. And we will get into that tomorrow's, in tomorrow's message. But, uh, but Paul certainly thought that he was historical. And so it's only recently when we hear these theories about how could the world naturally be made, even though we're dealing with a supernatural God, that we kind of think, yeah, those weren't, those weren't history. They were just poetic. And we're trying to kind of fit it in this other narrative um, I'm, trying to call me. I'm trying to call you or you're trying to call me you're trying to call me oh you didn't pick up no, didn't. that's right um no I lost my train <laughs> all right you're busy calling each other I yeah. uh, just just very
3: quickly I, I think those answers are great and we should always read the bible in its plain sense but the bible has uh, different Forms of uh, literature, so there's historical sections, there's letters, there's prophecies, there's poetry, and you read them all plainly, and you're trying to just simply find the plain truth inside of every single one of those sections. Some of them are going to be a little bit more complicated than others. But the best way to find the plain truth of the Bible is always compare parts of the Bible with other parts of the Bible. The greatest way to interpret the Bible is with the Bible. The Bible will self-interpret And how deeply should you read? You should read everything deeply, but don't try to find some hidden meaning. You're trying to simply find the plain meaning that takes the whole Bible into consideration. So when we say we read all the Bible literally, that doesn't mean we ignore symbols and um, figures of speech, but where there is no reason to think, well, that's a symbol or a figure of speech, we just simply interpret it plainly. And when you do that, the the deep meaning that you're trying to find is the wonderful truths that it's teaching you about God and teaching you about worshipping him. That's what you're to be looking for in the Bible is how can I know God More, Not some code or some uh, weird interpretation. Just read the Bible so that you can see Jesus and so you can know uh, God more effectively. But I think those answers were pretty good.
1: Okay, we will do one very quick question because we did get another one in. Is Christianity and the Bible misogynistic? So first of all we
3: have to define the word misogynistic and my answer is no the bible's not but the greek the word uh, misogynist or misogyny is from two greek words misnos uh, which means hate and gine, which means women Um, so misogyny is to hate women Um, does the bible hate women no not at all how do we know that because the bible says god made man and woman in his image in the image of god he made them god made man and woman male and female in his image Uh, not only that uh, galatians chapter 3 and verse 28 tells us that in christ there is neither jew nor gentile male nor female bond or free which means if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter what your ethnic background is. It doesn't matter what your gender is. It doesn't matter uh, what your social status is. If you love the Lord Jesus Christ, you're equal. Uh, you're equally valuable. And to prove that the Bible does not hate women, uh, you look at the amazing things God did through so many women in the Bible. The things that the culture would have never allowed a woman to do. In fact, when Jesus rose from the dead, who was the first one he appeared to? So it was to women. The disciples were too scared hiding away. What was wrong with those guys? He appeared to these ladies who uh, went to, um, to mourn him. And we see so many ladies used in the Bible. But what the Bible does say is God makes men and women different as well. And he does make men to be leaders. But that's not a hatred of women, that's a design of God. So the Bible nowhere teaches misogyny. However, there are misogynists in the Bible, and they're wrong, and they're bad, and we should say that's bad behavior. Um, some of the Bible characters that we like do misogynistic things, and we should say that's evil, and the Bible's not condoning it. And there are some Christians who can live in ways that promotes misogyny. They might do it in their humor, they might do it in the way they uh, mock people they might do it in the derogatory way they speak about women and that's sinful but the Bible nowhere promotes misogyny and for anyone to ever push and say the bible is a misogynistic book actually is evidence that they haven't actually read what the bible says because both men and women can equally be saved men and women can both equally use their spiritual gifts to bless others and men and women can equally share the gospel of jesus christ that doesn't sound misogynistic to me that sounds blessed to me and uh, we see that uh, mary herself saw herself as blessed the most because she got to carry the Son of God. So the Bible actually elevates women and shows how beautiful, precious, and valuable they are.
1: All right, thank you. What an excellent answer. We're going to call it there. (laughs) and there's a lot more to be said. We would love to go for another hour, but you guys wouldn't want that. So I'm going to ask Pastor Andrew to just close us off in prayer. And then we will... um, get our things and and get ready for for dinner
3: Now, dear heavenly father thank you for all those who had sent through these questions i'm so encouraged to see that so many people are really thoughtful Uh, they're wrestling through things they're thinking through things and i pray that you would learn help us to learn to run into questions and to find the answers in your word and i thank you for all that's been shared now and i pray that this would be a blessing to everyone here Um, Help everyone to walk away with a greater confidence in your word and a willingness to go to it and benefit from everything you have spoken and revealed. I thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.